This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Something, some scientist somewhere should maybe try to create a device for. What if we could each have our heads or foreheads scanned with some device, you know, like that little thermometer thing we were using uh, during the most of the pandemic, and instead of like when, when our head gets scanned, instead of our temperature showing up, it showed the percentage of how much scripture we were familiar with. So you could hold that little device in your hand and walk up to me and scan and boom, a number appears with what percentage of scripture I know. Wouldn't that be something? It'd be kind of interesting. I was imagining that this week because I was thinking about You know, how much scripture do I know? How much scripture am I familiar with? And I was thinking about y'all too. Um, Wondering how much scripture y'all are familiar with. And I just started thinking about people in general. Um, How much scripture does like the average person know? Or how much are they familiar with? What if we had a way to quantify how much scripture each person knows as they embark on that journey toward the ideal engager of scripture that I talked about last week. You know, even in our society, if you're not a Christian, there's a chance you still know some scripture. There's a chance that you're still familiar with some scripture, right? For most of you in the room, um, all of whom I think are believers, uh, I think you're pretty familiar with scripture. So as we get started this morning, uh, I want to do a little exercise. going to feel a little gamey, but um, I'm pretty confident that it'll be easy for this group, all right? Um, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start a portion of a verse of Scripture by saying it aloud. And then I'm going to briefly pause. And when I pause, I want you all to finish the Scripture, or like say the next little bit. Got it? Yeah? All right, one more thing. Um, up on the, the screen right now, you see a picture of a brain. <laughs> that's, that's representative of both your brain as an individual, but also our collective brain as a group, this congregation, all right? Now, all around this brain are bubbles. They're empty bubbles. And when I say a portion of a verse, if y'all get it right... We're going to fill in those bubbles with where that verse is from, okay? Um, the chapter, book, chapter, and verse, okay? So there are going to be 13, 13 of these. And each one counts for a point. And the points ultimately count for nothing, okay? Um, sound good? All right, all right, here we go. You ready to do this? All right, all right, so here we go. I'm going to say one, and I just want you all to say the next little bit. Here we go. 
All Scripture is useful. Yes, who said it? Come on, say it louder. For teaching. There you go. That's all I need. All You know the next little bit. All Scripture is useful for teaching. Boom, you got it. 2 Timothy 3.16. Maybe you didn't know the book, chapter, verse number, but you kind of have a feel, right? You, you At least one person knew. So you score a point for the group. All right. Here we go. Next one. Therefore, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and, yes, and turn from their wicked ways. Very good. All right. That was a team effort. Second Chronicles. I bet there isn't any of you who could have told me the book, chapter, and verse number on that, right? Maybe, maybe some of you. All right, here we go. He is faithful and just to... I saw it, I heard it, forgive, all right? You got that one? Here we go. Everybody in the room should know this one. Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded, yes, by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Excellent, Hebrews 12. I think everybody knows this one too. Often very much misquoted. (laughs) Um, For God will not let us be tempted Yes, beyond what we can bear. Y'all are too quiet. Let me hear hear it a little louder. All right? This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father. Thank you. There you go. We can stop there. You got it. Uh, From Matthew. Everybody is going to know this one. The Lord is my. Yes, you got that. Good. Psalm 23. Everybody knows that. Greater love has no man than this. Yes, that he laid down his life for his brother or for another. Very good. I'll give you that point. Um, all right, here we go. In the beginning, very good, excellent. And everybody on the planet, I think, knows this one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or one and only son, yes. And while these three remain, faith, hope, and love, The greatest of these is love. Very good. Every wedding, you hear that? Um, The fruit of the Spirit is love, and you get the whole list there. That's right. Very good. You got one more. You guys thought I missed one, right? Um, And everybody, I think, knows this one too. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There you go, 13. Look at that. Very good. I'm proud of you. (laughs) This... This is your brain on Scripture, right? Um, some of y'all get that old school reference. Uh, if you know, you know. Um, that's pretty cool, right? Um, and that's a decent chunk of Scripture right there. To be precise, that's 13 verses from Scripture. And while you may not have known the book, chapter, and verse number for all of those, most of y'all knew the verses themselves. Right, And with a little digging, uh, you could have easily found the book, chapter, and number. Now, I want to make a couple of points here. The first is this, point one. If I go back and read each verse in the order that I did, despite the fact that they're uh, from all from different parts of Scripture, or largely from different parts of Scripture, you know, I have arranged them in a way that in the order we did them, they actually tell a story. 
And the story is this. Scripture is useful because in it, we learn that we're sinful. And if we call out to God and humble ourselves, He is faithful and just and able to forgive because He sent His only Son who died for us because He loves us. And we should emulate that love. All right, listen. All Scripture is useful for teaching. Therefore, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, he is faithful and just to forgive. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. For God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. This then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Lord is my shepherd. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for another. In the beginning, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And while these three remain, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's pretty interesting, right? So the way I wove those verses together formed an interesting story. And here's the second point, point two. Until I just brought them up, those scriptures were just sitting down in you. You weren't thinking about them. Maybe you had even forgotten about them. Nevertheless, those scriptures are down in you. And as a result, because they're down in you, they've played some role in shaping you in your life. Let me put it this way. Those verses have come up at one time or another in your faith journey, in your life. And they, along with many other verses, have given shape to your story. Even if you were unable to pin a book chapter and verse number on them, you know them. They sit down in you. They sit down in you, operating at a level that you aren't even aware of sometimes. Take a second and imagine this scenario. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He comes along today, like shows up here, and he wants to know the scriptures that have shaped you. Well, he could ask you, but he could also dig through your notebooks, he could dig through your journals, he could dig through your notes, your Bibles, your, your scriptures, and so on to try to get some additional data to figure out what you've paid attention to and what shaped you. He could watch this video back and see what church you go to, and boom, there's a great resource for him. He could see that there are at least 13 portions of Scripture that you just know, that you have down in you, that you've been shaped by. And this, my friends, is precisely what's happening in Mark's Gospel. More specifically, for our purposes today, we can say this is precisely what's happening in Mark 1, verse 1 to 13. You and me, we, we are more like Mark from the ancient world than we know or realize. Let me explain. And so I want to do that by doing something similar to what we just did here. 
So here's Mark's brain. Mark had a brain on Scripture. But perhaps differently than us. And maybe some different verses came to the fore in shaping him as he grew up. And since Mark isn't here for us to ask him, hey, Mark, which verses like have shaped you, have shaped your story? Since he's not here, then we as students of Scripture, we have to do some digging to find out. And we do that, of course, by looking at his work, the story he tells. And we do that by looking at the words that he, the specific words that he uses in each verse. So in the background of Mark 1, 1 to 13, (laughs) there are at least 13 Old Testament books. And that was Mark's Bible at the time. That was Mark's scripture, the Old Testament. It wasn't a New Testament yet. He was writing it, at least part of it. And so sitting behind Mark 1.1, the very first verse of this book, right? Um, for example, we could actually point to seven different books of the Old Testament scripture that have shaped Mark. And there they are. Leviticus, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea. This is just one verse, the very first verse of Mark. And we can look at the very specific words he uses there and we can see, oh, this appears in the Old Testament here and here and here and here. And we can figure out, oh, this shaped Mark. You follow me? Yeah? I'm not saying that Mark cites those or even means to purposefully reference them always. But I am saying that verses like these may have formed him and shaped him, and they were just sitting down in him. You follow? Just like those verses that have formed you, that you know by heart, and are just sitting down in you, and are shaping you. There's this constellation of connections, if you will, that had shaped Mark, and those in turn have given shape to how he frames his whole story, and how he's going to tell Jesus' story, which he heard Peter preaching. In Mark 2, We can discern several other verses, but these two come from Exodus and Malachi. And in Mark uh, 1, 3 to 6, we have Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in Mark 1, 7 to 9, we have Isaiah chapter 43, and it looms really, really large. We talked about that last week. And so behind his first nine verses... I've detected, and I think we can all detect, these scriptural connections to one degree or another. And in today's verses, we just got to add more to this. And we're going to. And I think that once you see what's sitting behind the baptismal scene today, it's going to be really meaningful for you. I'm going to share with you the verses that I believe sit behind today's focal passage, which is Mark 1, 10 and 11, okay? And this, this, there's this pattern, um, and it's, it's part of the new Exodus theme or the new Exodus motif uh, that we've talked about in previous weeks. And it's truly astounding, this pattern I'm going to show you. It's incredible. It's so cool. And I think that once you see it, it's going to become meaningful for you. And as we continue to ask, why was Jesus baptized? Well, this helps give us some answers to that. We answered some of that last week. We're going to answer some more this week and some next week. 
We're going to get some more insights today. But I want to continue using this mind mapping concept to help get us going. What we're going to do, all right, is we're going to read our focal passage in just a moment, and then we're going to spend just a few moments considering the verses that have given shape to Mark's view of Jesus' baptism. And I think that once you see this, is like I said, it's going to be just meaningful to you. I hope it's meaningful to you. Meaningful to you. It's going to further your knowledge toward your own scriptural mind map. Sound good? All right. I I know you really have to have to activate your mind and stretch your mind a bit, but listen, don't sell yourself short. Every every time you stretch your mind in this setting or in your deep groups, or in your own study, you are giving the Spirit more to work with. It's worship. And so, I want to invite you to just stay dialed in with me for a few minutes. I know it's going to be a lot. I know last week was tough for some of y'all, but last week was part one of a three-part series, which means it only got us going. We still need today and next Sunday to fill in some more of those blanks, so stick with me. Here we go. Um, here's our focal passage, my translation of it. Mark 1, 10 and 11. Mark the narrator says, And straight away, while ascending out of the water, he, that is Jesus, he saw splitting skies and the Spirit as a dove descending into him. And a voice happened out of the skies. God the Father speaks. You yourself are my son, the beloved one. In you, I delight. This is a pretty amazing set of verses. And like I said, you might not even see it right here on the surface or at first glance. There's a ton of Old Testament sitting behind this, a ton, giving shape to it. I I want you, I desperately want you to see that because I was preparing this week. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And I want you all to see that. Ton of Old Testament sitting behind this. And first, I just want to show you three quotations where it's absolutely clear that Mark's drawn from the Old Testament, all right? Here they are. They're part of Mark's scriptural mind map for these couple of verses. So let's look at them, and we're just going to compare what Mark says to what those Old Testament verses says. For example, here's uh, Mark 1.11, part B, when God the Father's speaking, he says, you yourself are my son, the beloved one, and you I delight. Now look at Exodus 4.22. This is what the Lord says, Israel's my firstborn son. This is one of the first places in Scripture where God's speaking to people as if they are sons or daughters, children, his children. This is sitting way back in Exodus. Kind of an implicit uh, reference here. This speaks volumes theologically. Think about this. God speaking to the Israelites in the Exodus, and he's calling them his children. You're my son, he says. But think about it. Now we're in Jesus' land, in Jesus' territory, and he says that to Jesus. Something has shifted dramatically. Whose son now? Jesus. And we can't miss that. We can't miss that. It's very, very profound. Here's the next one, Psalm 2-7. Look what it says. God said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. You see the connection there. Still the son language. It echoes kind of what we just read in Exodus, but it goes right along with what we see here in Mark. We're going to look at one more. 
This is Jeremiah 31.20, and we could also look at Isaiah 42, but is not Ephraim my beloved son in whom I delight? This is the chapter, uh, Isaiah 42 would be the chapter before what we read last week, but we also have Jeremiah here. And so what my, my point is this, is that these verses, like all those that have formed y'all and have formed me over the years, they, they've informed this passage in Mark that we've just read. They've shaped Mark in his story that he's telling about Jesus. And we see these connections back to the Old Testament, but there's more. And this is where it gets really fun. Look again at Mark 1.10. And straight away, while ascending out of the water, Jesus saw splitting skies as a dove uh, and the Spirit as a dove descending into him. Within that verse, we read about water, Spirit, and a bird, a dove in this case. Now, for me personally, there are two Old Testament passages that immediately come to mind when I hear water and bird or water and dove. I bet the same might be true for some of y'all. Where do we get this grouping of water, spirit, and bird-like language in the Old Testament? Where? Noah's Ark. Yep, I knew somebody was going to say that. Any others? Creation, exactly. Yes. So we have the Noah flood story narrative, um, Genesis 8, 1 to 3. But if we go back to the creation story, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, right, then you can see it there. So we're going to go back there all the way to the start, get our bearings again. And while we're there, I'm going to help you see something just incredible. Even though we just spent a year in Genesis, we're going to see something cool here. Here's Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens or the skies and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep water and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you get that bird-like imagery there. It's the same word in Hebrew used for what a bird does. It's like hovering or fluttering over something. Okay, so what I want you to pay attention to is we have a beginning here, a newness, a new thing happening. This is the start of the world, all right? And we have water, and we have the Spirit. And what's the Spirit doing? He's, he's moving like a bird. He's hovering, fluttering. All right, this is the pattern that we're going to start to see all the way through Scripture, and I'm going to show you this. It's astounding. Right, so please hang with me. This is beautiful. If you can follow me here, this is beautiful. You've already heard me talk about the new Exodus motif and the precursor to that, the roots of that, if you will, start here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And within that new Exodus motif, we find this threefold pattern. You can see it up on your screen here. And it works its way all through Scripture. It's a thread from Genesis all the way through Scripture. And it's threefold because we have these three elements, water, spirit, newness. We could even call it perhaps the water, spirit, newness motif. But anytime we see these three elements together in Scripture, well, alarms from now on, sirens should like start going off in our brains. 
So here in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, it's the first instance of it. And I want to show you another one. But before we do, I want to add one important detail about water. Whenever we see water in this pattern, it's almost always going to be pushed back or separated by the Spirit. In fact, if you read on to day two of creation, we're actually going to do it right here, Genesis 1, 6 to 10, look at, look at what happens. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to what? Separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. Water separated. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And I believe this is sitting deep down in Mark 2, down in his mind, in his psyche. And it's formed his worldview his understanding of Jesus and Jesus' story. And he has this threefold motif lodged just down in him. Water, spirit, newness. The spirit moves. Waters are separated and newness happens. And to understand the rest of this message, you got to hold that in mind today. And some of y'all intuited, there's also the Genesis 8 connection. In particular, Genesis 8, 1 to 3, just after the flood, Noah's Ark. Here it is. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were there with him in the ark. And he sent the spirit over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky and the water receded steadily from the earth. So once again, we get a new earth, a, a cleansed and purified earth. It's an act of newness. You see the threefold pattern there. Yes? This gets me jazzed. I don't know about you, but it like gets me going. The waters had flooded the earth. God sent the Spirit to hover over them again, just like in Genesis 1. And when He does, what happens? The waters are pushed back. They recede. In fact, the specific language in verse 2, springs of the deep, earth and the floodgates of the heavens, right? You get this separate bodies of water. When did we hear that? Springs of the deep and then the heavens. We just read it in Genesis 1. When the earth's waters were separated from the sky's waters, or from the sky, right? The Spirit causes the waters to push back to separate and land appears. And in 8.8, we get the mention of the dove, not returning back to Noah. And so we absolutely have the water uh, spirit newness pattern going on. So we get it first at creation, and we get it at the recreation after the flood. Where does it appear next? Exodus. Look at Exodus 15, 8 to 10, and verse 17 with me. This is the great Exodus event, right? The passing out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And it says this, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall, right, on each side. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, I'll pursue, I'll overtake them, I'll divide the spoils, I'll gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you sent your spirit and the sea covered them. 
They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then we skip ahead a little bit. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, that you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. And so in the Exodus event, Israel is being founded as a new people for the first time. Other than creation and recreation, the Exodus is the most important event in Israel's early history. They leave Egypt and become a new people. You have water separated in the Red Sea. That's because the Spirit is sent and pushes it back. And afterward, newness. This we have this water, spirit, newness pattern. It's pretty awesome. Let's keep going. So after Moses died, he was standing on the mountain, or before he died, he was standing on the mountain and he was viewing the promised land from afar. He never got to go in. And after he died, Joshua, whose name in Hebrew sounds very much like Yeshua. Joshua began leading the Israelites in Moses' place. And before he could lead them to finally becoming the new nation, they had become a new people when they came out of Egypt, but Joshua is to lead them to be a new nation. And before he can lead them to be a new nation in their new land, the promised land, he had one last thing to do. Do you remember? Cross the Jordan River. Jordan River, sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly where Jesus gets baptized. But here in the Old Testament, what Joshua is told to do, he, God tells him, Joshua, go gather 12 of the leading Israelites. And they're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Now, y'all know at this point that the Ark of the Covenant is where the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells. It's where the Spirit of God lives in the Ark of the Covenant. And so God tells them, go get the Ark of the Covenant and then step into the Jordan River. And when they do, as soon as they step into the Jordan River, the Spirit parts the waters. Here's what it says in Joshua 5.1. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, they had crossed over. Until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And so to, to discern the water spirit newness pattern in this one, you have to remember God's presence. God's presence, a spirit dwells in the Ark of the Covenant there which when the waters were touched by those holding the Spirit of God, the Ark of the Covenant, boom, that's what separates them and allows the Israelites to walk through. We see water, of course, with the Jordan River, and we see the Lord's Spirit in the Ark. And they pass through to the Promised Land to become a new nation, finally. Water, spirit, newness. We're going to consider another Old Testament example. This is Isaiah 11, 15, and 16. God's people are in exile, and they're ready to leave the foreign lands that they've been pushed to. They're ready to have another exodus event in their history. And here's what we read. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. By the strong spirit, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River, and he will break it up into seven streams, so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway or a way for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. 
sounds very familiar to the language that we've encountered in Mark and some of these other Old Testament passages, but it also keeps up the pattern. You see it. Water, spirit, newness. And the spirit is going to separate the waters and he's going to make a highway through the sea and he's going to lead people to a new beginning. Are you following me here? Yeah? Hopefully. God started a pattern when he created the world, Genesis 1. And that pattern happened again at the recreation of the world, Genesis 8. And it happened again when God brought the people out of Egypt and through the Exodus, Exodus 15. And it occurred yet again when he used Joshua to lead them across the Jordan River into the promised land, Joshua 5. And he did it again here when he led the people out of exile in Isaiah 11. Water, spirit, newness. And guess what? If you know your scriptures, if you know your Old Testament, and you know these specific stories, when you come to Jesus' baptism in Mark 1, 10, and 11, what do you see? Same pattern. Water, spirit, newness. Water, spirit, newness. The thread of scripture. Why was Jesus baptized? Here's some more on that. To bring about a new creation. To bring about a new people, to bring about a new temple, to bring about a new empire, to bring about the truth that God is doing a new thing. And he's doing that new thing in Jesus. And it involves water and spirit and newness. And guess what? Again, we too work hard to be baptized. And if we follow this long thread of Scripture, what does that mean for us at our baptisms? It means that when we get in those baptismal waters, the watery grave, boom, the Spirit comes and we're buried in our sin, right? We're buried in death and we're raised to new life in Christ. And when we rise from those baptismal waters, the Spirit indwells us and God begins a new work in us. And you know what? Baptism it just isn't, it isn't just for individuals. What I mean is this, that whenever we have someone among us get baptized, that's for us too. That's why we don't do private baptisms. It signals God is doing a new work in our midst. That he never stops, never stops working. When we're baptized, not only are we part of this long thread of history that started with creation and recreation and exodus and promised land, but in all of those instances at our baptism, God is doing something new. He's doing a new thing. Jesus' baptism was unique. It was new. And it paved the way for our baptisms, for God to do something new in us too. Isn't that incredible? Come on. I think it's astoundingly beautiful. There's a reason that baptizing is part of that great commission. It's a sign that God's doing a new thing among his people. And when his people are daily living out their baptisms, he's doing a new thing daily. He's doing a new thing daily. You go to sleep and you rise anew for God to do a new thing. 
as you can see, there's just a lot packed into Mark's verses. And before we finish up today, there's one more thing I need to show you. I debated whether to do this or not, but I'm going to do it. So um, I'll touch on some of this next week and in the weeks to come, but I couldn't live with myself if I just ended the sermon right where I could have just ended it. I had to include this. <laughs> I want us to take a close look at Mark 1.10. And we're going to give attention to a key word he uses in that verse. Really, really important. And straight away, while ascending out of the water, he saw splitting skies and the Spirit as a dove descending into him. Now, Mark may have also had a passage from Ezekiel in mind in the background here, but I don't want to look backward to the Old Testament this time. I want to look forward. There may be an allusion to the transfiguration in Mark 9 here, but there's a linguistic connection. And this is what I want you to see. There's a linguistic connection, and it points right to the very end of Mark's story because he uses the same word right here at the start that he uses at the end. It's this word schizo. It's a Greek word. It's where we get our word schism from, schizo, to split. And here's what Mark 15.38 says. And the veil of the temple was schizo, split in two from top to bottom. Now let's go back. And Jesus saw schizo, right? He saw the splitting skies and the spirit. And the veil of the temple was schizo, split in two from top to bottom. And this is really cool. This is really cool. I want to show you this. Incredible. There may have been, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but if you think about the Jerusalem temple, there may have been numerous veils within the temple. But there were two main veils in the Jerusalem temple. I'm going to show you them in just a minute. But there was one that could be seen by the Jewish people from outside. The entrance, right, um, you could see it from outside in many of the courts, but it was the veil that hung as the entrance to what was called the holy place in the temple. And then you go behind it into the holy place, there's a second veil. And once you pass it, you're into the holy of holies. And when Mark mentions the veil being torn here, right, this is at Jesus' crucifixion, I think he's talking about the first veil of the temple. It marked the entrance to the holy place. And so in the last few weeks, you've heard me talk about this guy named Josephus. He was a, a Jewish historian. And he gives us this gift of a detailed description of the first temple veil. We don't get that in the New Testament. We get it from Josephus. And Josephus, he says, it was, it was Babylonian tapestry. And he says the materials themselves were not without mystical meaning. And he goes on to say, this veil was an icon of the whole universe. It portrayed, he said, a panorama of the heavens or the skies. And so we're going to look at it. I want to show you this veil. All right? I'm going to kind of walk you through something here. So here's our typical map. You guys know this. I've been showing it to you. This is Palestine during Jesus' time. You can see right down here we have Jerusalem. All right? And you remember that for Jews, 
Jerusalem was the center of the earth, the center of the world. And the temple is at the center of the center of the world. And the Holy of Holies is at the center of the temple. So the Holy of Holies is the whole, like the center of the universe. All right, it's the holiest place on earth. So here's an aerial shot. It's looking at the old city of Jerusalem. And where I have circled here, this is the Temple Mount. All right, we're going to zoom in to the Temple Mount. And if you zoom in, you're, we're standing at the south corner here, the south gate. And look down here in the bottom left corner. You see, this is called a mikvah. A mikvah, that's our word of the week, mikvah. A Hebrew term that refers to a bath or a pool used for ritual immersion. So this is, and essentially, you're going to get yourself in the mikvah when you go to the temple. You're essentially baptizing yourself to get clean so you can enter the temple. All right? Make sense? All right. So once you've immersed or cleansed yourselves, you head up the steps and into the temple grounds. And if you're a Gentile, you stop right there where the line stops. You can't go any further. There were signs all over the place warning Gentiles, you're not allowed to go beyond this point. For our purposes here, we're going to go down to the bottom and go around to this area that's called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. It's likely where Jesus was when he was uh, a, a child in the temple talking with the religious teachers. Okay, so now we're at Solomon's porch, and you can see way back in the distance, right? This is outside the temple precincts on the very outside, and you can see I have the first veil circled there. You could see it in real life, this first veil from outside the temple on Solomon's porch. And as we go into the temple, uh, now we're in what's called the court of women. This would There would have been a bunch of shops set up here. They would sell wine and oil and animals and, and the like, wood. And this was as far as Jewish women could go. What I want you to notice is you can still see the veil from this point, the one that Josephus talked about. We're going to move forward again. We're still in the court of women, but you can now see the veil better, a little better. And we move forward into what's called the court of the Israelites for the Jewish men. And this was as far as they could go. And right to the right of that, where you see all this stuff, is called the court of priests. And you can see the altar in the court of priests over there to the left. Got an arrow pointing to it. And just behind it, there's a huge lavar, right? It's a, it's a big wash basin. And the priests, they would take animals up on the top of this altar and slaughter them and sacrifice them. And then they would come down and purify themselves in the lavar behind there. They would do ritual purification. You can see it. And you can still see that veil. Now, let's get a close look at this veil. Look at that. This is the view from the court of priests. Have a look. It's pretty much what Josephus said, a panorama of the heavens or the skies. This is the entrance to the holy place, one entry away from the holy of holies, the most holy place on the planet. We're going to go behind this. Now we're in the holy place. You can see the second veil. I've got some things circled here. You can see the lamp stands down on the left. You can see the uh, table of showbread on the right, the altar of incense. You can see that veil with a lion on it and a bird figure. So why am I 
Why am I showing you this? Why am I showing you this? Look at that. The image of the skies or heaven, other than the fact that it's really cool just to show you this, I had to show it to you because of the connections with Mark 1.11. When Mark tells us that the sky split open at Jesus' baptism, he uses the same exact word for the splitting of the skies as the splitting of the veil. And I think he's got a double meaning going on, and the Jews of the time would have picked up on it. But you and I got to do research to pick up on it. Yes, I think the sky did open up, and the Spirit did descend, and God did speak. Something else happened that I'll talk about next week too. But I also think that this first veil with the sky woven into it may have been symbolically split. And then at Jesus' crucifixion, the veil to the second veil into the Holy of Holies is split. Right? And this would have been earth-shaking, literally and metaphorically. It means that the temple at Jesus' baptism is already being described as on its way out. And it means, too, that we all have access to God now. But it also means this, that God has access to us, to our insides, via the Holy Spirit that he sent down, which we get first wind of in dwelling at Jesus' baptism. And so why was Jesus baptized? To institute a new temple, to institute a new priesthood of believers, me and you, to give us access to God directly and to give God direct access to us directly by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' baptism, it signifies many things, not just one. It signifies that God's doing a new thing. Indeed, new things. And if we want to be on the same page as God, well, we should enter the watery grave of baptism and then live that out every day. A constant dying to self, rising to Christ. Dying to self, rising to Christ. Every single day, dying to self, rising to Christ. Really, that's all being a Christian is. That's all being a Christian is our bottom line. Being a Christian is living out your baptism daily. Dying to self, rising to Christ over and over and over and over and over again. A constant yielding of one's life to God. Rinse, wash, repeat. Over and over and over. Water, spirit, newness. Water, spirit, newness. And it's a beautiful thing with a rich history in the Old Testament, in the temple, in Mark's story. And I hope you see that. I hope I've helped you see that today. I hope you're edified by this, and I hope you're encouraged. And I hope you're giving the Spirit more to work with. I hope you invite God today to be doing new things in your life. Amen? Amen. Stand and let me bless you. If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go forth living out your baptisms daily, dying to yourself and rising to new life in Christ. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace. Love y'all.